Good evening. It sure is good to be together. I don't think there's a place I'd rather be on this side of eternity than right here, right now with all of you. Y'all enjoying the cool weather? Again, amen to that. We don't get very many more of these days before summer's here, so we got to take it while we can get it. Uh, I spent the afternoon in a sweater with my house shoes on and kind of enjoyed it and then almost didn't get dressed in time. I almost had to preach in my pajamas, so... Y'all be thankful. And then I was distracted. We came in, and I forgot to get my microphone until we were singing this little light of mine. So I'm kind of out of breath because I was hustling down the hallway. It's a long walk over there to the offices to get this microphone. So, hey, I'm, I'm excited about tonight's lesson. It's, in a, in a sense, a standalone lesson, but it's attached to a series that we're going to start here in a couple of weeks. And it comes from Luke chapter 10. I'd like for you all to open your Bibles there to Luke chapter 10. And I'm going to kind of begin by reading verses 25 through 28 to set the context a little. Jesus had just sent out the 72, and they had come back, and they were really excited about all the things that had happened, and they were telling Jesus about that. And it's kind of in the context of that that this lawyer stands up and decides to put Jesus to the test. And the text says, starting in verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, over the next few Sunday evenings, I believe next week we've got a fifth Sunday singing. The weekend, or the Sunday after that, we have our uh, senior Sunday where we get to hear from our young men. But after we uh, get through those, then we've got a, we're going to unpack this loving the Lord our God with our heart, with our soul, with our strength, and with our mind. But tonight we're going to look at that last one, loving your neighbor as yourself, and ask ourselves, uh, what he meant by that when Jesus proclaimed that to be true. And, and a lot of that is, is unwrapped as we continue on in the text because we see on that particular point, this lawyer pressed Jesus a little bit. Let's read our key text for tonight, verses 29 through 37. But he, that's the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. As I 
step up to this story, one of the first things that I notice, um, which I, I, guess, I guess that's kind of my way of preparing. It's like, what do, I, what do I see? What stands out to me? What big questions do I have? And I think the most marked thing as I, as I read this interaction is that Jesus doesn't answer his question at all. Um, Jesus, in fact, seems to answer another question. If we kind of start at the beginning, we wonder, why did the lawyer ask this question to begin with? I mean, he had had this interaction with Jesus. He had answered correctly, and, and yet he felt the need to just kind of push the envelope a little bit. And I wonder why. Well, the text tells us that he desired to justify himself. I think if we read between the lines a little bit, this, this man was a lawyer. He would have been a lawyer who was an expert in things of the religious sort, of the religious law. I believe Jesus and his response to the lawyer had a little bit of a barb stuck in there. He said, do this and you will live, implying and probably the man understood that he wasn't really living this out to the full extent that he was required to. And so, desiring to justify himself, in other words, desiring to be sure that he, he clearly articulated that he was within the parameters with which he understood, he asked Jesus this follow-up question, much like a teenager might push the limits a little bit further by just by challenging a little bit and saying, well, maybe, maybe I really am right. Let's define this term. Let's define this term. Let's define this term. And that's what this lawyer decides to do. It's this situation of him pushing. And I, and I wonder what the lawyer expected Jesus' answer to be. What do you think he expected Jesus to answer? Do you think he thought Jesus would say, Well, um, your neighbor is all these fellow Israelites. That probably in the lawyer's mind would have been the liberal answer. You're expected to love all of these people who are also God's people. Or, or maybe he would have drawn the boundaries a little more narrow. I think we can imply from his question about internal life that he was a Pharisee. And there were certainly other Jewish believers who were Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. So maybe if the, the lawyer had his way, he would draw the boundaries a little more narrow. And he would say, well, well, the one who's really my neighbor are not just the ones who are Israelites, but the ones who are Israelites and think the right things. Or maybe, maybe he would draw the boundaries even smaller than that. I mean, he wasn't just a, a regular old Israelite with these beliefs. He was a lawyer, which means he had some prominence. He was probably well-versed and well-educated. I mean, someone who could stand up and ask questions like this. So maybe he would have drawn the boundaries even more narrow. He would have said that not only does this apply to the Jews... It applies to the Pharisees, and it applies to the smaller subset of those who really believe and pursue and live out this subset of teachings. You can see that this parable paints a challenging picture from a social standpoint. Because he takes the lawyer's, uh, the, he, he takes the, he takes the lawyer's uh, um, biases... And he puts them on display by putting the ones whom the lawyer would most easily associate with in the most negative light. And the ones who the lawyer would be most appalled by, he paints in a good light. I would guess that the Samaritan in this story would not even have been a blip on this man's radar as a possibility of someone that he should love. I've tried to think of a way to paint this in modern day terms that we could fill the, 
um, the weight of it. I, I think we've probably done a good job of, of, of shifting and expanding our love um, in a way that we don't quite feel the disdain um, that, that the Jews felt for a people like the Samaritans. I, I hope that we've moved away from that. But, but allow me, to, allow me to, to retell this parable in modern day terms. Let's say that you had a, a man who had been beat and left on the side of the road for dead. And who would the first character be that Jesus would paint as coming along? Well, it would probably be that silly preacher that stands up every week. And, and he would see that man and, and, and think that he's pretty much dead, and he would probably assume that someone else was coming to help. And after all, he couldn't get his blue shirt bloody. I guess it used to be a suit, but now it's a blue shirt because I'm changing the rules. Okay? He couldn't get his blue shirt dirty and, so, and with blood on it, so he would walk around the man and move on. But we're in luck because there's about 700 other people that are going to follow behind him. And one by one, they filter past, but they have the same type of thoughts. Like, man, but I'm heading somewhere important. Uh, I don't have, time to, don't have time to dirty my hands with this mess. But then... Around the corner comes this homosexual who wouldn't set foot in those people's church. And he sees the man. He sees that he has a need. And he stops and he bandages his wounds. He takes him to the hospital. And he sits with him while he gets a room. He offers to pay for a meal and some of the things that he needs. He leaves a check behind to be sure that things are covered. And Jesus would say, which one of these proved to be a neighbor? Ultimately, it would seem that the lawyer was looking for the limit. The line between the black and the red, between winning and losing, who was in and who was out. But Jesus refuses to answer a question like that. Jesus actually never told him the answer to his question. Nothing was shared about the robber. Nothing was shared about the robber other than the fact that he had a need. So Jesus paints this picture for them, this picture that's just been painted for us, and then he asks this different question. He says, let me give you a hypothetical. If you were observing this situation from the outside, what does it look like to be a neighbor? And then he gives them this directive that still doesn't answer his questions. He says, you've seen it, you know what it looks like, and that's what you are supposed to go and do. If we are playing Jeopardy, what would you say was the question based on the answer? I think the question that Jesus responded to was, how can I be a neighbor? You know, sometimes the questions we ask just aren't the right ones. Sometimes we're looking for the wrong thing. Sometimes we need to point, be pointed in a different direction. Let me get a raise of hand uh, of all of our males in the room who are married. Okay. All right, there's quite a few of you. Who don't want to pick on? I'm going to pick on Sam, all right, because Sam's an easy target. Um, Sam, I want to ask you a question. Um, have you stopped beating your wife? Well, now, that's, that's a loaded question, isn't it? That's a difficult question to answer because, because the question carries with it this, this presupposition. I mean, you, you can't say yes, but, 
But you can't say no because that implies something that's also not true. The, the answer requires a, a little bit of an explanation, one that, that you would need a microphone for, right? Because, um, um, you know, I, I look at ourselves and it's fascinating how often we ask loaded questions. We bring these assumptions to the table without even realizing it. And, and there was an assumption in this lawyer's question. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? The assumption there was not everyone is my neighbor. I mean, it wasn't clearly spoken, but, but he came to the table with this presupposition. He asked Jesus a question that he couldn't really answer with a clear yes or no without giving the wrong impression. The lawyer felt like there were some people who were not his neighbor. There were some people that the lawyer felt like he did not have to show love to. There were some people that the lawyer was not showing love to. And that's why he challenged Jesus on this point. The ultimate teaching of this passage is this. Compassion, love. Love has no boundaries. The question implied a reality that wasn't true. Love requires certain attitudes and actions towards people and things. And and I'm telling you, Jesus' teaching here is that everyone is worthy. Everyone is worth it. So why didn't Jesus just answer his question with that? Why, when the lawyer asked the question, didn't Jesus just answer when he said, Who is my neighbor? Everyone seems like that would have been accurate. I think it would have been technically correct, in a sense. After all, he refused to put limits, and instead he told the man to go focus on being a neighbor. But he could have, he could have accomplished this thing with, a, with a, a much shorter answer, and I believe he didn't for this reason. Because the very fact that the lawyer asked this question meant that he wasn't understanding what love was. And so were he to extrapolate this this view of love that he had out towards everyone, he still would have been wrong because he came to the table with this wrong perception of what it meant to love. Love isn't about what I can get by with or what is the minimum standard. Love is about stretching yourself as much as possible. And in this parable, he not only rightly expands the, the neighbor pool, from the subset of people to everyone, he also gives a teaching and challenges the lawyer's understanding of what love itself even is. If we look back through the story, we see that love is more important than race or religion. Because also those were charged issues that Jesus purposefully put in this teaching. Love is more important than race or religion. Love requires compassion and connection with others as human beings. Love requires giving of your time and resources. Love requires giving without limits. You know, for a parable that most of us know so well, whose teachings at this point may almost seem trivial, most of you have heard this parable taught on multiple times, probably by people more eloquent than me. But the bottom line is this, we really struggle to apply its teachings. 
I look at what this parable does to me, and it, and it does several things. The first thing it does is it crushes our desires to place limits on our, our charity or our compassion or our love. And we say we don't want to put limits on it, but we do. Jesus wrote this earlier, or Jesus said this earlier in Luke 6, 32 through 36. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You know, I look out at all of you, and y'all are a pretty easy bunch to love. I mean, we get frustrated with each other. We're family. But this is a a place where it's just easy to show up and, and love you because you love me. So when I pull up on Sunday morning and drop my kids off and um jack's at the door greeting or maybe will barbie standing there holding it open and and he he shakes everyone's hands and and greets him i i love it it's an easy man to love he's right there loving us you know i don't mind picking up tables after a fellowship meal because y'all just gave me some really good food and so i kind of feel like i i'm earning my keep if i'm rolling some tables into the storage shed i know that um you'll come help me were I to have a need, so it makes it a lot easier to show up and help one of you when you're in a time of need. You are comfortable. You give back. You share my worldview and, and my ideology. You're safe, and I know that you're not people who are going to take advantage of me. Love in this room just makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. It's easy to do, but, but when I step outside of this bubble... Loving becomes a lot more difficult. Loving others outside of this space feels a lot more risky. And it's a lot harder to make sense of love amongst those who don't share the same ideas as us. But when I look at this parable and it, it teaches me that there aren't limits to be placed on love. Our love is to be extended to everyone. This parable also challenges challenges the the propensity we have to offer sacrifices to God, yet neglect to offer mercy to others. Let's think a little bit about that. Practicing religion is a lot easier than loving people. Um, What do I mean by that? Well, I want to be careful as I kind of ease up to this because I don't want to imply that these things I'm about to say are bad. They're they're not. They're very good. But we go to church and we write checks and and drop money in in the black boxes at the back or give online. We sing and and we sing our hearts out when it's time to worship. We go to Bible class. Many of you are even teaching in in Bible classes. We participate in all sort of service here at the building. And all of of that is wonderful, but, but that has never been our primary calling. It's certainly important, 
I think it certainly flows out of our love for God and our love for people. Those are things that you're going to see in people who are pursuing God. But that's not central. These attitudes that we are supposed to have caused some of those activities, but these activities are just a symptom of this inner heart, something that flows from something else, not an end of themselves. Micah 6, 6 6-8 says this, With what shall I come before the Lord and, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. These other things happen naturally when our heart is right. What God wants is a people whose heart is tuned towards Him. And a people whose heart is tuned towards the things that God values. And this parable teaches us that God values people. Justice, kindness, humility. That's what's laid out in Micah. So this parable challenges us. In regard to our uh, propensity to offer sacrifices to God while ignoring others. Finally, this parable challenges us to move past thoughts and prayers and toward time, money, and inconvenience. I want to read from James 2, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You know, we often offer thoughts and prayers, and I think prayers are wonderful. We need to be praying because the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And that's the God-given scriptural truth. But at some point, this beaten man needed someone to stop and help him. We live in a world full of tangible needs. And tangible needs have to be met with tangible deeds. We certainly can't fall into the trap of thinking that our deeds earn us salvation. That's false. But we also can't fall into the trap of thinking that they're not necessary because how we interact with others matters to God. And not just how we interact with each other, how we interact with the world matters to God. So you don't get to have feelings of love towards others while keeping your time and your money 
to yourself and call it love. We have to move our thoughts outward and get our hands dirty and get in the trenches with people and meet their needs. We have to shift from asking who must I show love to and how much is enough to who can I show love to and how much can I give. And if we could shift that question, ask different questions as we navigate and interact with a broken world, I think you would see people drawn to the miracle of Christianity in a different way than we see today. You see, what we're doing here means, means little if it isn't coupled with what we do out there. Christianity is not an intellectual exercise, but a whole being exercise, our body, our mind, and our heart. I'm grateful for this place and this space and all of you where I can come and be safe and loved. But this time together prepares us for the road where we are going to encounter people of the world who have been beat down. And the second greatest command requires that when we leave this space, we're willing to stoop down and do something about it. So as you go out this week, it may be that you'll encounter someone who's hurt. Will you use your time and your money and your resources to heal? Or will you pass by on your way back to the building? Perhaps you're wounded this evening, and this is a safe place to heal. Perhaps you failed to be what you need to be, and God will forgive, we'll pray for you, we'll help. We are in this together, and we'll walk with you together. Whatever your need might be, we invite you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.